Uh, well, do please take hold of a church Bible and uh, turn back to page uh, 12, to Genesis 11. That's where we're going to begin this evening. Uh, lots of exercise uh, for your fingers as we work through the Bible, uh, but that's where we're going to begin on uh, page 12. Uh, you should have in your pack of papers uh, a blue A5 handout. Uh, it just gives you an idea of where we're going because we're looking at a number of different passages. And uh, certainly for those of you who take notes, that should be useful. Uh, And even if you don't, I hope you'll find that a a help. Uh, Just a couple of other things to mention before we begin. Um, Things that you may find useful in just following up some of the things that we're looking at this evening. Uh, One's a little booklet by John Woodhouse. It's called Unity That Helps and Unity That Hinders. It's only a couple of pounds. It's over on the desk as you go in, uh, just on the left of the church centre. Very, very helpful. Uh, Even if you don't agree with him in all the detail, um, I think that's one of the most helpful things on the subject that we're looking at this evening. And if you can't quite face a two-pound booklet, uh, there's a kind of pricey, uh, it's kind of everything you need to know from the book. It's the sort of thing that students always ask in terms of what do I need to read for the exam? Well, you don't get an exam on church unity, but uh, this very unhelpfully titled The Babylonian Unity of the Church uh, is free, and actually it's much clearer and much more helpful than the title suggests. Well, I hope by now you've found uh, page 12 in the Church Bibles as we come to consider this uh, subject of uh, the unity. Who needs the church when it's so divided? The truth is that we live in an increasingly fragmented society. So the government recently announced its intention to teach children traditional core values uh, to promote what the Guardian called the holy grail of social cohesion. Only in the Guardian. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The holy grail of social cohesion. What is it that brings people and keeps people together? Now, if you've ever watched the BBC News quiz, Have I Got News For You? You'll know that one of the rounds includes the infamous guest publication. Uh, Contestants must guess blanked out headlines from the week's newspapers, plus headlines from bizarre guest publications of minority interest groups. And if you've ever seen it, you'll know that the guest publications provide a fascinating, if not disturbing, insight into the kind of things that bring people together. Some people actually receive and presumably read the following. Potato Review. (laughs) Australian Goat World. Diarrhea Digest. (laughs) Dental Glove Update. Who reads these things? I have to say, a couple of my favourites from the most recent series are Winking World, the official journal of the English Tiddlywinks Association, and the Vacuum Cleaner Collectors Club newsletter. (laughs) You know, if teaching our children traditional core values doesn't bring social cohesion, maybe we could introduce the history of the vacuum cleaner into the national curriculum. Of course, the problem of a divided, increasingly fragmented society seems to be reflected in an apparently fragmented and increasingly divided church. So who needs the church if it's so divided? Well, to to answer that question, we need to think or begin to think through what the Bible teaches about the church and what the Bible teaches about unity. And I want to structure our thinking around three statements this evening. Church unity is a gospel reality... Church unity is a gospel necessity, and church unity is a gospel proclamation. 
Well, firstly, church unity is a gospel reality. I was talking to an old lady last week about what really mattered to her as she approaches the end of her life. She was very honest in talking about that. Her answer? Well, it was people. It was relationships, that connectedness with friends and family. When your wealth's disappearing and your health's failing, you see more clearly what has always mattered the most. And that is loving and being loved by somebody else. Now, according to the Bible, we have a desire for relationship because we are made in the image of God who is three in one. One God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Fundamentally, the Bible is concerned about establishing right relationships, right relationships with God and right relationships with each other. But according to the scriptures, there is both a true unity and a false unity in human relationships. So in creation, men and women made in God's image are united. And that unity is reflected in marriage. So Genesis 2 verse 24, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And of course the significance of that through the New Testament is that it speaks of a much more profound unity, and that unity is between God and his people. And yet as you read on the Bible, it's clear that in rejecting God's rule, human relationships are marred by enmity and disunity. And so from Genesis 3 onwards, unity in human relationships remains what we aspire to. The problem is that we think that we can achieve that unity outside the rule of God's word. It's what John Woodhouse refers to in that leaflet as Babylonian unity. It's the unity exemplified in Genesis 11 here, the unity of the Tower of Babel. The whole world with one language and common speech rejecting God's command to fill the earth and subdue it. And so they say, verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord's response to human pride and arrogance, the Lord's response to this tower that in human estimation reaches to the heavens is verse 5. I love this. We build a tower that reaches to the heavens and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. And in mercy and judgment, he confused the language and scattered people over all the earth. You see, false unity is seen in our futile human attempts to achieve unity outside the rule of God's word. Now, whatever social unity we may seem to secure outside the rule of God's word, it can only ever be superficial. It's why the Guardian refers to social cohesion as the Holy Grail. It's so elusive. Now, education and moral exhortation will never bring true social unity. At best, it is only a sticking plaster covering the divisions that the Bible says result from human sin. False unity is seen in our futile human attempts to achieve unity outside the rule of God's word. In society, yes. 
but also within the local church and between local churches. Now, it's very important to be clear, when the New Testament speaks about the church, it describes either the spiritual house, which God is building, the universal church, the universal church which is not seen, the house, if you like, that is made up of true believers, past, present and future, New Testament either speaks about the church in that sense or it describes the local gathering of believers that is seen. So by way of example, Paul can write to the church of God in Corinth. So the church of England, or indeed any denomination, is not a church as the Bible understands it. Along with other denominational structures, the Church of England is a human organisation that links local churches together. And it may or may not help the growth of the gospel. That depends on the fidelity of the different local churches to the word of God. Indeed, a church that rejects the word of God is not really a church at all. Now, when the Bible addresses the issue of division and disunity, it does so primarily in the context of the local church. So Paul writes to the church of God in Corinth and says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united. Unity in the local church matters, but it will never be achieved outside the rule of God's word. Now, of course, the Bible acknowledges that there is value in being united with other local churches. So again, as Paul writes to the church of God in Corinth, he goes on to say to the church of God in Corinth, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. But it's important to remember that unity within the local church and unity between local churches can only ever be in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not unite around the bishop. We do not unite around music or informality or formality. We do not unite around spiritual experiences or organized structures. All such attempts are misguided and futile. A few years ago, I went on one of the diocesan conference where all the clergy from the diocese get together and we met in a, a hotel in Blackpool, which probably seems to most people like your ultimate nightmare, doesn't it? Taking over a hotel with lots of vicars. But I remember having a meal with one chap one evening, and he was saying how wonderful it was that we were all in this building together and that we were all united. To which I said to him, it's going to take more than a chicken supper to unite these people together. Because actually that's just structural and organizational unity. True unity only ever comes in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, true unity is something that God establishes through Jesus Christ. Just flick over to page 1174 to Ephesians 2. 1174 to Ephesians 2. See, true unity is something that God alone establishes, and he does it through the work of Christ. So Paul here reminds the church in Ephesus that a divided community of both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God and to each other in the gospel. 
Ephesians 2, verse 14. He, that is Christ Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. See, true unity is something that God alone establishes. And he does it through the work of Jesus Christ, which is why Jesus prays the way he does in John 17. And that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time this evening. So if you can turn back to page 1085 uh, to John 17. Now, if you remember this chapter, you remember that in verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays uh, for himself. In verses 6 to 19, he prays, prays for his disciples. And then in verses 20 to 26, well, he prays for you and I if we are believers. He prays, verse 20, for those who will believe in me through their message. In other words, those who will believe the gospel, the message of the apostles, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. You see, church unity is a gospel reality. God establishes and secures church unity in and through the gospel of Jesus. So what does all that mean in practice? Well, I think there are both warnings to be heeded and encouragements to be heard. See the warnings? Well, we need to remember that there can be no unity outside the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the message that we read in the scriptures. So-called churches that drift away from the biblical gospel will be increasingly divided in the same way that institutions like the Church of England that drift away from the gospel will also be increasingly divided. In such situations, it is not actually that the church is divided, but that the gospel has been abandoned, because church unity is a gospel reality. When institutions like the Church of England are divided, the solution is not to try and be more united. The solution is to return to the biblical gospel. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day who said to me, you know, I, I don't like to exclude anyone. You know, I like to be inclusive. And of course, that's right, isn't it? And you hear the same kind of sentiment whenever you go to any kind of Church of England meeting. You hear the same kind of thing said in Christian Union meetings. You know, I don't want to exclude anyone. I want to be inclusive. Well, who wants to exclude anyone? And then you begin to think, well, maybe the problem is that I think that I can be more inclusive than Jesus. For the fact is that Jesus himself said that the gospel would bring division. Some will believe the gospel and discover true unity and some will reject the gospel and pursue false unity. So Jesus says these very disturbing words in Matthew 10. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father 
A daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. You can't be more inclusive than Jesus. Be warned, there can be no unity outside the gospel of Jesus Christ. But be encouraged. The unity of the church is not under threat. True unity is something that God has established and secured in and through the gospel of Jesus. The unity of the church is not under threat. Indeed, the unity of the church is as inviolable as the unity of God himself. So Paul says in Ephesians, there is one body, the church family, and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, it can be deeply discouraging to see the constant media coverage about how divided the church is. But a gospel-believing people can never be divided because church unity is a gospel reality. It's something that God has secured in Jesus. G.K. Chesterton was right when he commented that at least five times the faith has, to all appearances, gone to the dogs. In each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. Or as Jesus himself put it, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Church unity is a gospel reality. Secondly, church unity is a gospel necessity. If you read the Bible, it's clear that there is a now and a not yet dimension to the unity of the church. The true church is united in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the Bible constantly appeals to believers to be what you are in Christ. Be what you are in Christ. So believers are holy, not in themselves, but in Christ. Therefore, believers are to be holy. Similarly, believers are forgiven. Forgiveness that is given, not earned. Therefore, believers are to be forgiving. Believers are united. Because that's what God has secured in the death of Jesus. Therefore, believers are to be reconciled. Why then is the local church sometimes divided? Why do we sometimes find relationships within the local congregation so difficult? Because the church is work in progress. There's a now and a not yet dimension to our unity. So Peter puts it like this. He says that believers are living stones that are being built into a spiritual house. In the Bible, the church is the people, not the building, but it is still a building site according to the New Testament. And so when Jesus prays in John 17, he prays that believers will, verse 23, be brought to complete unity. Our unity is both now and not yet. Knowing we are united in Christ, we are to pursue that unity because anything less is a denial of the gospel. In other words, church unity is a gospel necessity. We must, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now again, you have to say, well, what does that actually mean in practice? Well, church unity as a gospel necessity is rooted in an understanding of the Scriptures. 
Again, John Woodhouse puts it like this. The unity that the gospel creates will be strengthened by clarity about the content of the gospel. The unity that the gospel creates will be strengthened by clarity about the content of the gospel. You see, sometimes I think we are afraid of discussing our differences as if airing our differences will jeopardize our unity. It's the elephant in the room syndrome. You know the sort of meetings, meetings where everyone knows that there are disagreements, but nobody says anything. Now you get it in home groups, you get it in PCC meetings, you get it in Christian union meetings. It's like there's a massive elephant sitting in the corner of the room, and yet everyone pretends that it's not really there. And sometimes elephants in the corner even go into print. So ministers within the Church of England are supposed to use this book, which is called Common Worship. It's supposed to order public worship. The difficulty is that unlike the Book of Common Prayer, there is nothing common to its content at all. Indeed, there are almost as many Gospels as there are contributors. We must be clear. Merely asserting our unity neither establishes it nor preserves it. Pleas for unity that are nothing more than mere assertion are often a lazy refusal to engage with the scriptures. Pleas for unity that are nothing more than a mere assertion are often a lazy refusal to engage with the scriptures. We must discuss our differences over an open Bible so that we can be what we are, united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, in my experience, in my own life, I think we don't want to talk about our differences over an, over an open Bible because, frankly, it is hard work. It is far easier to deal in theological sound bites. Now, of course, we excuse our laziness with excuses about the Bible being difficult to understand. Well, that may well be true in places. But as Martin Luther put it, the Holy Spirit is the plainest writer and speaker in heaven and earth. And as we study the scriptures, we can be confident that the Holy Spirit will help us to understand them, not exhaustively, but truly and sufficiently, that we might be what we are, united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we must avoid being over-prescriptive. We must be clear and definite only where the Bible is clear and definite. But we must also avoid being under-prescriptive. Strong and growing unity amongst God's people is never found by appealing to the lowest common denominator. It just isn't. Follow that road and you'll end up in the wilderness of interfaith worship. We worship God and any God will do. Church unity as a gospel necessity, is rooted in an understanding of the scriptures, but it is preserved in a living out of the scriptures. It's preserved when we walk the truth, as the New Testament puts it. See, it's never enough to understand the truth. You have to live the truth too. We are, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, to walk worthily, which means in the context of church unity, to be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
We're to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's why Jesus says what he does in Matthew 5. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come offer your gift. And you see, that's where the rubber really hits the road, isn't it? Church unity is a gospel reality. Church unity is a gospel necessity. And yes, I need to understand the scriptures, but I also need to live them. And in the, me- the midst of the mess and the difficulty of human relationships, that's where the rubber really hits the road. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That sort of unity is enormously challenging and costly. And I, for one, can think of a hundred reasons why such a challenge does not apply to me. Now, sometimes people talk about getting back to the early church as if things were all perfect in the first century. I have to say, I I think such an attitude reveals people's incredible naivety and their profound ignorance. For if you read any of the New Testament letters, it is clear that relationships between believers were as difficult then as they are now. And to me... The Bible's honesty about the difficulty of human relationships is far more encouraging than the pious rhetoric of some Christians who think all is well. Some people read the Bible with rose-tinted spectacles and conclude that the the church in the first century was one big happy family. Well, you're not reading the same Bible that I'm reading. See, Paul says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Why? Why? Because being completely humble and gentle doesn't come naturally to any of us. And when relationships are difficult, we would rather avoid one another than bear with one another in love. I have been outside this church building when someone has walked out of the building having met together with God and has walked the different way because they don't want to talk to me. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why? Why does Paul say that? Because if you're anything like me, you're happy to make a bit of an effort. But anything more, well, frankly, it feels just too much like hard work. Church unity is a gospel reality. Church unity is a gospel necessity. And thirdly, And more briefly, church unity is a gospel proclamation. In John 17, Jesus prays for those who will believe in him through the message of the apostles that they may be one even as he and his father are one. Why? Verse 21. So that the world may believe that you sent me. You get the same thing in verse 23. May they be brought to complete unity. Why? To let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see, the gospel understood and lived is a powerful statement to an unbelieving world. For here, in the community of failed and still failing sinners, 
there is an incredible and powerful testimony to the love of the Father, even for a world that has defied his rule. It is, Jesus said, by your love for one another that all people will know that you are my disciples. I know the church is not perfect. I know that it is work in progress, that it is, if you like, a building site, and sometimes you can barely see the spiritual house that is being built because of all the rubble and mess of the building site. But it is still the place where true unity can be found. It is a place where people can know that they are accepted and loved, not because of the way they look, or because of the job they do, or because they are wealthy or poor, or respectable, respectable, or despised in the world's eyes? Accepted and acceptable because the finished work of Christ makes it so. I remember the first time I ever really met a group of people who actively called themselves Christians. I was 16 and I was on a school trip and you think, well, what struck me so powerfully about these people? That they had answers to life's big questions? Well, yes, actually, that was the case. That they were surprisingly fun to be around? Well, yeah, that was the case too. That they loved one another? With a love that I had never seen the likes of before? Amazingly, yes. And so I found myself drawn to the person of Jesus Christ through the patient love of his failing people. And I wonder, I wonder how many people this evening that is also true for. Maybe it was the love of Christian parents Maybe it was the love of Christian friends. Maybe you were someone who'd never bothered with the church in the past because you always thought that it was so divided. And then you discovered that not every church that calls itself a church is really a church. And that a real church seems to be made up of people who love the Lord and love each other. And it was an experience that quite took you by surprise, wasn't it? And through the patient and the imperfect love of God's people, you discovered something infinitely precious. That God so loved the world, even you, that he gave Jesus, that you might not perish but know eternal life. Why bother with the church? Well, that seems a pretty good reason to me. Let's pray, shall we?